0: Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries. Welcome to Jewish Awareness Podcast, a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. On Friday nights at our headquarters, we host a Bible study. Generally, we do verse-by-verse studies of different books of the Bible. Through the years, these studies have looked at the books of Isaiah, Ezekiel, John, and Hebrews. At times, we will have studies devoted to Jewish cultural events or issues relating to Israel and prophecy. These studies can be viewed live through the Jam Facebook live stream platform on Fridays. If you have questions or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org. Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919-275-4477. This information will be repeated at the end of the podcast. Enjoy the Bible study. last
1: week is similar to what we're going to look at tonight, but I printed out new handouts because we're going to go into a little bit more of a depth of the remainder of John chapter 5. We're going to look at some other things after that as well, but just kind of an introduction to recap some things. We've seen Jesus' miracles as well as his discussions with Nicodemus, uh, namely John chapter 2 and John chapter 3, and the Samaritan woman, his discussion with the Samaritan woman, John chapter 4. We've seen seen that he is the Word of God incarnate, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, it says in John chapter 1, God in human flesh the Creator walking among men. And let me plug in this right here, well actually, it's the very next sentence. I don't know my own, uh, my own writing. We have seen him show his authority, okay? So the authority of Jesus as the Messiah, as God in human flesh is like the main motif that we see over and over and over again in the book of, uh, book of John. Jesus authority. It's constantly becoming into, coming into question uh, by the Jewish religious authorities. And he is consistently, continually proving that his authority is the authority of none other than Jehovah, God himself, uh, in human flesh. We've seen in this same chapter, John chapter 5, him show his authority over the Sabbath in purposefully healing and having a man carry his bed on this day. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't, uh oh, what do I do now? It was on purpose. It was absolutely on purpose. And we're going to see some things that... Uh, Jesus has in this conversation with these Jewish authorities that resulted from Him healing on the Sabbath and having this man carry his bed. Why can He do that? Because He is God, because He is the Lord of the Sabbath, because He is greater than the temple. We looked at some other passages in the Gospels, some parallel passages uh, that dealt with that. He can give us rest unto our souls, it says in the book of Matthew. Here we find Jesus' response. So the charges laid against him from the Jewish religious leaders. And before we get into verse 31, let's go back up. I just want to see his his immediate response in verse 17. To when the Jewish people, okay, and and, and here I'm not speaking of the Jewish people in a general sense, but a very specific group of Jewish people, uh, the Jewish religious authority and leaders, those that were uh, in the temple compound. Uh, most likely the Levites, okay, as well as others uh, within the sect of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So here in verse 17, actually in verse, verse 16 it says, "...and therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him, because he had done these things on the Sabbath day." And we would think that the Automatic response, according to man's logic, when God isn't in the picture and it's just our own minds trying to figure out what, what, how do I respond to this? You know, They're upset with me for, for all these things. Jesus, as he often does and he continually does, he just kind of goes in a direction that nobody is expecting and he hits the nail on the head. And he says in verse 17, Jesus answered them, he didn't try and find some loophole, I'm not really breaking the Sabbath, I'm not really, I didn't make this man carry the Sabbath, it's, it's, it's okay because of this type of thing. He didn't do that, he says my father worketh hitherto or my father works or has worked until now and I work. And so immediately his response to a, uh, a question about the law and his being guilty of doing this or that, he answers it by saying, I am God, basically, and when he said this we can see in the response, the immediate response in verse 18 that they immediately took it that way, is that that's what he was saying. Therefore, the Jews sought the more to kill him because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but that he also uh, said also that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. And then we looked through, and if, if you have the notes from last week, you can look this up. We're not going to go into it for time's sake, but just to review, Um, that chiasm, verses 18 through verse 30, where it it, it, it kind of narrows in, it zeroes in on the center of what not only John is writing, but the center of what Jesus was trying to communicate in those verses, verses 18 through 30, and that key verse being verse 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word, and believeth on him that sent me, hath, right now, present tense, everlasting life. And shall not, future tense, come into condemnation, but is past, past tense, from death unto life." When we get salvation, we have salvation past, present, and future. It's not like we're going to at some point lose our salvation and thereby come into condemnation, otherwise that makes Jesus a liar in John five twenty four. And so, and this is just one verse, um, but if you, can, if, if you can lose your salvation, if you can walk away, if you can do anything that would cause you to come into condemnation as a believer, by losing that salvation, we thereby contradict uh, head-on what this verse is teaching. Shall not come into condemnation. You can mark it down. If you have heard his words or read his words, as we have them in front of us, and you've believed on him, you shall not shall not, shall not, shall not come into condemnation. Okay, moving down. Verse 31. We get into a section where Jesus is identifying the witnesses to him. The witnesses to him being the Messiah. Jesus' witnesses to the Jewish people. Verses 31 through 33, uh, actually verse through, the, through verse 35 but we'll look at verse 31 through 33 to begin with. The first witness is John the Baptist. The first witness is John the Baptist. Look at verse 31. It says, If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another that beareth witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesseth of me is true. Ye sent unto John, and he bare witness unto the truth. Now, All the way back in John chapter one, remember how there was priests and Levites sent to John from Jerusalem to inquire of why is this that you are baptizing? You know, Um, This is what Jesus is referring to when they sent unto John, and he bare witness unto the truth. He said, I'm not the Messiah, but there's one coming after me who is mightier than I whose shoe latched, I'm not worthy to, to unloose. And he pointed them to Jesus as the Messiah. And so, why does Jesus say this? Why is this phrase here in verses 31 and 32, uh, or verse 31 primarily, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. Do you know what Jesus' favorite book of the Bible was to quote from through the Gospels? Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy. And so here he's not quoting it directly, but he's alluding to it. Look at these verses, Deuteronomy 17 verses 6 and 7. At the mouth of two witnesses or three witnesses shall he that is worthy of death be put to death. And so in very, very serious matters, not only negative matters but also positive matters, if there was to be a witness, it was uh, required that there would be at least two or three. At the mouth of two witnesses or three witnesses shall he that is worthy of death you want to take the, um, the, red, um, the red knob on the mixer and take it down just a little bit? I think I'm, I'm kind of ringing, okay, that's better. So, at the mouth of two witnesses or three witnesses, shall he that is worthy of death be put to death. But at the mouth of one witness, he shall not be put to death. The hands of witnesses shall be first upon him to put him to death, and afterwards the hands of all the people so thou shalt put the evil away from among you. Also, Deuteronomy 19 and verse 15. One witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity or for any sin. In any sin that he sinneth, at the mouth of two witnesses or at the mouth of three witnesses, shall the matter be established. And Jesus also mentioned this in John chapter 8, verse 17. We're not there yet, but he says this. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. This is what Jesus is referring to. And so he's talking to Jewish people and he's talking to them in a way that they can understand. He's meeting them where they're at in their context. According to your law, okay, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, a truth shall be established. Well, let me give you a couple of witnesses to what I'm telling you. The first one is John the Baptist. Verse 34, we read this, but I receive not testimony from man but these things I say that you might be saved." This is such an incredible verse. In the midst of all of these different things that Jesus is talking about with these Jewish people, okay, these Jewish religious leaders and authorities, these Judean Jews in Jerusalem, at the temple compound no less, are arguing with him and seeking to slay him for healing a man on the Sabbath and telling the man to carry his bed. This is why Jesus had that conversation with that man. This is why Jesus partially uh, chose to heal that man on the Sabbath day so that he could have this very conversation with these Jewish religious leaders. And it starts all the way back up in verse number 19, Jesus's answer to them, and it continues here with his witnesses uh, to the truth that he has been telling them. But why? We can get so caught up with all these different things that he's saying and these theological things. You need to realize, verse 34, all of this is that you might be saved. Jesus isn't getting into an argument for arguing's sake. He's not um, being flippant or flamboyant or, or, or any of those things. He is trying to give these people a life-saving, soul-saving message of the gospel. He's trying to uh, give them new life. He's trying to give them salvation. And so we can learn a lot of things, oh, a lot of things, probably so much that we could never even uh, reach the tip of the iceberg of the things that we can learn from how Jesus converses with his people, or anybody for that matter. And so in talking to Jewish people about the gospel, you it probably would not a good idea to go up to a Jewish person that's probably never heard uh, the true gospel. They may have heard some things about, you know, you've got to be baptized and join the Roman Catholic Church or, or, or something like that. Uh, renounce your faith, or, or renounce your—you know—renounce Judaism as it was in the in the Crusades and in the Inquisition. Horrendous, horrendous things, and those are in the forefront of their mind when you talk to somebody about Jesus, not the Jesus of the Bible. And so you have to meet them where they're at. And so when Jesus talks to these Jewish people, he doesn't come out with some brand new concept that they had never heard of, or describes himself and the truth of who he is in some way that would be. Hard for them to understand, but he begins by saying, "If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. But there is another that witnesses of me, and another, and another, and we're going to see many, many more." Um, John is just the first one that he mentions, and so this, this is a, a, a simple reminder that when we talk to people, Jewish people or otherwise, what did Paul say? He said to the Jews, "I became a Jew that I may win the Jews." To the barbarians, you know, he 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 reach them where they were at, how they could understand. You're not going to talk to a child like you talk to a 40-year-old person about salvation. Um, You're not going to talk to a Jewish person the same way that you would talk to a Buddhist. It's just different. And we're foolish to think that we should have some kind of cookie-cutter method that we can reach every single person, because Jesus didn't work that way, neither did Paul. Uh, Reach them where they're at. Okay, so he says, the whole, he says I, I, I say these things that ye might be saved. The whole point of all of this is that ye might be saved. It is here and now that we see Jesus' purpose and heart. This echoes what he told Nicodemus in John 3 about why he was coming into the world to save. And so as we see these things, we should not look at this as just, kind of a discussion between Jesus and some Jewish people or some words on a page or a recorded conversation, but we should look at it and through these words, we should see Jesus's heart and purpose. These people that he is talking to are not making him angry or upset, they're breaking his heart. He wants nothing more but for them to be with him in eternity forever. I think it's in 1st Thessal- in, in, in or 2nd Thessalonians, it talks about how Jesus died on the cross for us that whether we wake or sleep, whether we're alive or dead, we may, be, we may be together with him. That's in the Bible. And so, in a nutshell, why did he die for us? Why did he die for you and for me? And for these people here and for everybody? Why did he do that? He did it so that we could be with him. That's what he wanted. That's what God wanted. God didn't want us to be separated from him forever in eternal judgment, he wanted us to be with him and experience the fullness of his blessing. Okay, so, verse number 35. Speaking of John, he was a burning and a shining light and you were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. There's an interesting little tidbit here that we learned from this verse that we don't really have anywhere else in scripture uh, kind of told to us. This single verse shows us an amazing truth that ends up being kind of a side note in this passage, that for a while, at least at the onset of his ministry, John the Baptist was accepted by the Jews, meaning the Judean religious authorities. It was only when his ministry began to explode, okay, gain great momentum, that the Jews, again, the Judean religious authorities, sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him who he was. John chapter one and verse 19. And so according to what Jesus says here, you were you willing for a season to, to, to rejoice in, in, in his light. And we see a similar thing, a very similar thing, in John chapter eight. Jesus is discussing the truth about who he is with a, a great crowd of Jewish people. And they're along the same lines of what he's saying, they're taking it in, they're, they're, they're accepting it, if you will, and in John chapter eight and verse, I think it's number 30 or 31, it says, and the Jews or a number of Jews there believed on him and the Jews that he was talking to believed on him. But then in the very next couple of verses, Jesus says, if you're my disciples indeed, or he says, uh, he says, uh, let's turn there. I don't want to misquote it, John chapter eight. This will be kind of a preview of one of my favorite passages to look at. John chapter eight, verse 30. As he spake these words, many, uh, many believed on him. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him. Now there it's not meaning that these Jewish people became born again, that they truly received him as their savior. What it's saying here is that they were on board with what he was saying. They were, they, they were okay, Jesus, we're, we're, we're believing on what you're saying so far up until this point, but everything changes with the next couple of statements. Verse 32, famous verse, well-known verse, taken out of context many times. This verse was, um, I mean, it's applicable to all, but it's specifically to a group of Jewish people that were on the fence about trusting Jesus. I would say that with what Mark has been teaching in the book of Hebrews, this passage kind of parallels that idea. Some Jewish people that were professing, okay? Professing that they were believing what he was saying but they were not possessors of Christ. They did not receive him. Because look at what they say. Jesus says, verse 32, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Should that make a believer get upset? That statement. Okay? And ye shall know the truth. Actually, he says in verse 31 if you continue in my word, if you continue, okay, and come to the point where you receive me, you come to the point where you come to the end of yourself, turn from your sin and accept me as your savior. Then are ye my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And then they answered him, we be Abraham's seed. We're never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou you should be made free?" I'm not going to get too far ahead into this, but from this point on, it spirals down, downhill. They reject him full out, they call him a devil. Um, And Jesus says, you are of your father the devil and the works of your father you will do. Now that's been something that's been taken way out of, I mean, it's been used in an anti-Semitic fashion in pointing to all Jewish people. Now it's not necessarily all Jewish people, but anybody that's lost. I mean, God isn't our father, right? It's not the universal fatherhood of man and universal brotherhood, or fatherhood of God and universal brotherhood of man. Um, Anyway. Just to show you that in a in a snippet fashion, we'll get there. I don't know, twenty twenty sometime. We'll get to John chapter eight, um, but um, it kind of parallels how the Jewish religious authorities, according to this verse, verse number thirty five, how they reacted to John the Baptist. Okay, he was like many of the other uh, well, many of the other people that maybe claims to be prophets in that day or teachers and they gathered to themselves disciples and this was, this was wonderful, this was, this was great but then when they hear what he's really saying and he's saying repent you know, he was very he was a hard preacher, I mean he was like Bob probably some of you guys have never heard Bob preach you just take a car ride with him for a little bit right but anyway, they rejoiced in his light for a little bit but then they they, 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 they full out rejected him. Um, and that's what happened with Jesus in John chapter 8. Uh, and so that happens. Okay, before we get into the second witness, let's take a break here for a second. Uh, you know, take a, take a breath of air. Is there any comments or questions or discussion? Yes. I just want to make a... Rejecting, rejecting Jesus, the, um, well, speaking of in John chapter 8, the Jewish people that he was talking to at that point, um, from his statement to them that, if you continue in my word, you'll be my disciples indeed, and you should know the truth, and the truth should make you free, um, how that passage kind of continues the Jewish people that he was speaking to he just flat-out rejected him in, in John chapter 8.
0: My point is, is there a certain segment of the Israeli society that he was talking to? Is it the
1: whole nation? All the people? Well, here... Because because there are certainly several several thousand Jews sure. in the first century. Well, in the beginning of John chapter 8, the scribes and Pharisees bring unto Jesus the woman taken in adultery. He's still talking to the Pharisees in verse 13, Um, and so as we continue on in John chapter 8 it appears, and there may have been others there as well, but there was definitely those of the Pharisees. Now, the fact, you know, I'm not saying that they represented the Pharisees as a whole. There's elsewhere in the scripture where we uh, read of Pharisees believing on the Lord Jesus as as their Messiah. Um, But this group in John chapter 8 was Jewish people of whom the Pharisees, some Pharisees at least, if not all, we're not necessarily told, but the Pharisees were definitely present. Um, This is at the temple that Jesus is speaking. So that would be the group
0: so some,
1: uh, some yeah it could have been I mean Nicodemus was one uh, you know of a Pharisee um, but we're not told specifically um, in that fashion just that there was Jewish people there was it says that there was many but it probably would have been where Jesus was i would I would surmise pretty much entirely a, a crowd of Jewish people and of those Jewish people in that crowd, um, probably I would say a majority would have been Pharisees, of the sect of the Pharisees. But we're not told specifically, you know, Sadducees, Pharisees, um, or any others in that group as well. Does that answer your question? Kind of, sort of. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Praise the Lord. Okay. Any any other questions or comments before we continue? Okay, speak now or forever hold your peace. No, I'm just kidding. We can always, we can always go back. Okay, so uh, verse number 36 starts the second, the second witness to the truth of who Jesus is, and that is his works. But I have greater witness than that of John. For the works which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do, bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me. And so he's continuing you know he's laying one thing upon another showing them the veracity of what he is claiming and who he is claiming to be and he's not running from it he's not kind of giving some other excuse or some kind of oddity like you would expect a false prophet to do but he lays out uh, verifiable facts one upon another john the baptist The works that the Father has given me to do, of which many of them were witnesses." In fact, just moments ago, just moments prior to this statement, Jesus healed a man who had been lame, you know, unable to walk for 38 years. Um, Many times, and this is not just um, evident in, in, in Jewish people, but anybody that's lost, Lots of times, if you try and talk to somebody about the truth of the gospel, and the saving power, the um, the power to change lives that Jesus has, okay, and the truth about becoming born again, oftentimes, even when something miraculous seems to have taken place in the Lord changing your life, um, a lot of people don't want to hear it, you know and they'll excuse it away in this fashion, that fashion or the other. And with the Jewish people here talking to Jesus, arguing with him, uh, seeking to slay him it says for healing the man on the Sabbath and telling him to to take up his bed and and, and walk and then claiming that my father works until now and I work. Um, Immediately it shifted gears to where the man that was lame for 38 years just kind of, poof, just vanished out of their mind and, and, and heart and sight, and it just it, they completely missed it. The same exact thing happens in John chapter nine with the man who was born blind, and he is healed by Jesus uh, as well, and a similar, similar thing happens. Jesus had just healed a man moments ago. He's trying to get them to realize who he is. Now, a- a- again, what's the purpose? What's the purpose and the reason behind everything that Jesus is saying? That, that they might be saved. Uh, he's trying to get them to realize who he is, yet another reason for his healing and command to carry on the Sabbath, to have this very conversation with the Jews. So often, things happen in our lives. Maybe you've experienced this before. Uh, God does not do anything by accident. I don't believe in any coincidences. Every single thing that God does or God allows has a specific purpose in the mind and heart of God. And um, these things should cause us to come toward Him. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. I wanna share something with you guys that I don't know, maybe none of you are are aware of. Um, And this will maybe answer a question that maybe some of you were thinking if you've never thought to ask, okay. I have some scars on the back of my head, okay, and I have a scar here, and I have a whole bunch of other scars that are hidden by this shirt that I accumulated before the time I was five. Um, I'm going to give you a little bit of the background of my testimony, not necessarily my salvation testimony, but some things that the Lord used in my life uh, that greatly, greatly impacted me. Um, anyway. I had to have my mom write out um, my medical history because my medical history, if you try and get your medical history faxed to a new doctor, like in another state or something like that, mine is literally like a dictionary, and pretty much all of it is from zero to five. Okay, um, and so she wrote this for me, and I found it the other day. I had it, I tucked away somewhere, um, and I thought, wow. Okay, so. April 4th, 1984, 3.13 p.m., Daniel enters into the world two months premature. So I was supposed to be born in in June, okay? But God had different plans, okay? Um, I was born in April. Rushed to Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital, that's in Cleveland, to be placed on a ventilator due to underdeveloped lungs. April 5th, 1984, Rainbow Hospital calls Dan's mother, still at Euclid General, flatly stating, Mrs. Bergman, your baby is dying. They go on to tell her, he may die if we do exploratory surgery, but if we don't, he will definitely die. What would you like us to do? Now, this is like a, an official letter that my mom had written for me to give to doctors. Listen to what she says. Mrs. Bergman thinks to herself, are these people complete morons? Question mark, explanation point, question mark, explanation point. I don't know, she's just, she puts her humor in there, I guess. And tells them she would like them to please do the surgery. After several hours and finding nothing, they are about to close Daniel up when they realize the internal bleeding was caused when they, all in capitals, ruptured the umbilical artery by placing the IV in it. Repair work is done and Dan is on the mend. Shortly thereafter, Dan begins to develop hydrocephalus. That's water on the brain. They tell Dan's parents this was mostly due to the forceps delivery. when there's too much pressure, it can cause a head bleed, which he has, and it, ha- and it has clotted in the exact place where the fluid drains from the brain. So like when our, our, our missionary that we've prayed for so often, Moshe Gold, who had the stroke, he had to have a shunt put in, and um, because of a similar issue with draining fluid from the brain. Um, Dan has returned to surgery, he's given a shunt connected to a very long tube coiled in his abdomen, so that fluid can continue to drain into the abdomen and the coiled tubing will uncoil as Dan grows. Dan stays in the neonatal intensive care unit, weight originally four pounds even, dropping to three and a half pounds as he faces jaundice and other problems dealing with recovery from such major surgeries at only a few days old. Dan's mother prays, and as his health slowly improves, one nurse confides that several of them didn't think he was going to make it. In all, Daniel spends about five weeks at Rainbow, and the Bergmans are finally allowed to take him home close to Mother's Day. Um, In October of 1984, Daniel is back at Rainbow, six months old. His tubing is caught up in scar tissue from the first exploratory surgery and disconnects from the shunt, something that will happen many times during his first five years. The problem is dealt with, and Dan returns home again. April 4th, 1986. Two-year-old Dan attempts to pick up his cousin, who is four. After the birthday guests leave, he begins to complain that his diaper hurts. After trying to ease his discomfort to no avail with the pain steadily getting worse, uh, basically, uh, I had a double incarcerated hernia, Um, just to add to things. There were other hospital stays due to the tubing getting caught up in scar tissue again, but to be honest, I was busy having babies at the time and they all kind of run together after a while. Okay, that's my mom's (laughs) comment there. March 1989, another such hospital stay comes about and more surgery. They were running out of non-scar tissue covered area in Daniel's abdomen, and the doctors were trying to remove some of it. When, I was later told by some of the nurses, the doctor nicked Daniel's large intestine, making a hole. Daniel was forced to spend about a month or more at Rainbow with his stomach open so they could check the healing, I assume, and he was not allowed to eat or drink anything for three weeks. This is very difficult for a four-year-old. Every day, the doctors would come and look in the hole in Daniel's stomach, pour in hydrogen peroxide, I believe, and tape a little cover back over his abdomen. Oftentimes, uh, the stomach acid would leak out, which was very painful for Daniel, as it would burn his skin. During that same time, a doctor told Daniel's parents that there was no more room in Daniel's abdomen due to all the scar tissue. They would have to disconnect the tubing from the shunt permanently. He said it was only successful in 10% of the cases. I never knew this until like two or three years ago, okay? This, 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 this uh, figure here, this statistic. Um, he said it was only successful in 10% of the cases, but there was no other option. Mrs. Bergman got back on her knees again next to Dan's bed. There was a nightstand with a jar in it and the tube from his shunt draining out. Every day they would drain a little bit less, hoping against all odds that Daniel would make it into the 10%. The time finally came to meet with the doctor again. He was pleased but stunned. He happily informed us that Dan had made it to the 10%. Eventually, Daniel was well enough to go home a day or two before his fifth birthday. End of part one. So, um, anyway, things happen in our lives, sometimes traumatic things, sometimes things that deal with stress and anguish and anxiety and you know emotional, financial, physical, whatever it might be. And just like what Jesus did here with this man who was lame for 38 years and healing him specifically on this day, not only for his sake, but to have this conversation with these Judean leaders. And they completely missed the boat and we oftentimes do the very same thing. When God is trying to get our attention, um, I got saved as a 15-year-old boy. And the uh, first time I remember ever thinking about eternity, I think it was like seven or so, six or seven, and I was going with my mom to visit her mother's grave, uh, gravestone. She was going to put flowers there. And I remember thinking for the first time that I can remember, I wonder what's going to happen to me when I die. I mean, I'm a, I go to church. I'm a Christian, right? You know, I'm in a Christian home. I didn't really know much better. Um, but I remember thinking this just vividly in my mind. I remember, I remember thinking, I hope I can, I can fool God. As a seven-year-old boy, I hope I can fool God because I have no assurance of where I'm going. And I knew that I wasn't that great. Anyway, those things that I went through as a little boy, I believe helped me to understand the seriousness and brevity of of, of life. Although I didn't, by a long shot, understand how serious it was, um, why does God allow this or that to happen? Because for the same reason that he spoke to these Jewish leaders here, that they might be saved. That is his desire. Um, And so if you are a believer and you're going through things, it's kind of the same story. He wants you to not accept him for salvation, that's one and done, but he wants us to come closer to him. He wants us to experience his presence and his blessing in a way that we oftentimes don't when everything's going well. When I had my gallbladder issue, boy. And, and, and when I, I dealt with those, those sicknesses that would come up every couple of weeks before we knew that it was my gallbladder, I, I, I dreaded it happening and it was awful, awful, awful physically, but spiritually, it was a, a sweet, sweet time that you can't get otherwise, you know? Sometimes we come the closest to the Lord when we're, we're, we're driven to our knees, you know? And everything else, everything that's not important that tends to cloud 100% of our days so often, just fades away. And uh, it's just amazing when, when the Lord does that. Um, but he doesn't do anything without a purpose. And so whatever you might be going through or if you may be facing something in the future, the Lord wants you to just sense that he's there with you. You know, He wants you to experience something sweeter than we couldn't really experience um, when we're not going through those things. The third witness. Okay, So we have John the Baptist. We have the works of of Jesus, okay? The things that the Lord does in our lives. And then we have the Father, the Father himself, verse 37, "...the Father himself which hath sent me hath borne witness of me. Ye have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his shape, and ye have not his word abiding in you, for whom he hath sent him ye believe not." Again, everything, everything, everything that Jesus is telling them is for the purpose of their salvation. Even this which can seem kind of harsh, but that's the second part of the methodology of Jesus' witnessing to people, okay? He reaches them where they're at and He doesn't beat around the bush, okay? Ye have not His word abiding in you, you have not seen Him at any time. For whom He hath sent, ye believe not. And so, Jesus is driving home the point that He and the Father are intimately connected, in fact they are one and that he was sent from the Father. Again, we see a parallel statement to this in John chapter eight. Uh, the Jewish people today, okay, as a majority, those that have rejected Jesus as their Messiah or have not come to know who he really is, have not come to believe in him, they do not know the one that they claim to worship. They don't know him because they don't know the one that he sent. And that's clear in this verse. And it's also clear in John chapter 8. Um, by the rejection of Jesus, the God of Israel in human flesh, they have rejected the one that they claim to worship. And this should all cause us, and by the end of this lesson, if we get through it time-wise, and I think we will, our hearts should be heavy for the Jewish people. The Jewish people that in this area, the Jewish people that are around the world. The reason that we're here is that they might be saved. Um, And so I desire to kind of bring that out when we see these things here. Okay, number four, the fourth witness, Okay, and if you have any questions or comments or discussion, just, just raise your hand. The fourth witness that we have here to the truth of who Jesus is, is the Scriptures. The Scriptures. And by the way, um, there's numerous times, skipping back up to the Father, there's numerous times um, that, in, 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 in ways that the Father has borne witness of Jesus, but one of those specifically was at his baptism. You know, this is my beloved Son, hear ye Him. You know, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Okay, so the Scriptures. Verse 39 through 44. Search the Scriptures, which by the way, what is Jesus referring to as the Scriptures? Yeah, but the, the Torah, the Tanakh, okay? The books of Moses, uh, the, the, the prophets, the writings. Search the Scriptures. <coughs> "...for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me." Okay, so once again, he is continually reaching out on another level that they might be saved. Search the Scriptures. Uh, in, In the Scriptures, you think that within them you find eternal life, right? That within them you have eternal life. Search them, they testify of me. "...and you will not come to me that you might have life." I receive not honor from men, but I know you, that you have not the love of God in you. I am come in my Father's name, and you receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, which we've seen numerous times throughout history, another come in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe which receive honor one of another, and seek not the honor that cometh from God only? Right here, Jesus is calling them out and their pride. He shows his messiahship and his omniscience. He says, I know you. I know that you have not the love of God in you. And I know that if another came in his own name, him you would receive. Case in point, I have an example here of somebody who was pretty well received Among the Orthodox Jewish crowd, and by a certain amount of them um, believing that he is the Messiah. And Mark mentioned this man a a couple of lessons ago, Menachem Mendel Schneerson. You guys heard of him? Okay, he passed away in 1994. Um, Where is the Messiah supposed to be born? Bethlehem. Bethlehem Ephrata, okay? Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. Uh, Schneerson, born in what is now the Ukraine in 1902, he was born to an ultra-Orthodox Jewish family. He did much to advance Orthodox Judaism in the 20th century and to main, remain concise, and this is from an article uh, that I wrote for our magazine, I think a couple of years ago. Um, we had a, an article about false prophets, or false messiahs, rather those that were either claimed to be the messiah or were taught to be the messiah. There were many during his life who declared him to be the messiah, although Schneerson largely denied many of these claims. Later in his life, he allowed such proclamations to be made. He didn't deny it when it was brought up. The organization that he led is one of the biggest anti-missionary groups within Judaism. They despise evangelical Christianity. There are some in Crown Heights, which is a very Jewish area of New York City, who say they don't believe that the Rebbe, which is what he's called by, um, those that follow him, uh, it's kind of a term of of endearment and respect and authority, um, the Rebbe, they don't believe that he's dead. There's a group in Crown Heights that believe that he's still alive. And others who say that his resurrection is imminent. Some of these resurrectionists who critics within the movement say are straying from far from traditional Judaism, have taken to sleeping near the Rebbe's grave in a queen's cemetery, hoping to be the first to see their Messiah rise from the dead. If you go to Israel, you will see a lot of people that believe that this man is the Messiah. I was given a kind of a business card from an Orthodox storekeeper in Jerusalem. And uh, it says something along the lines of, Long live the King Messiah, the King Messiah is coming. Um, and it had a picture of Schneerson on it. And that same poster is plastered in different locations throughout Israel. And there's also a, uh, a group that has a table that has the word Mashiach in Hebrew. And uh, they are those that are of this group that believe that this man, Schneerson, is, is the Messiah. A messianist, uh, messianist publication uh, Elucidated the theory as early as 1995 that since uh, the third of Tammuz, which is when the Rabbi passed away, we are no longer able to see his to physically see the Rebbe King Moshiach Messiah. The Rebbe remains physically alive just as before. It is only to our eyes that he is concealed. Therefore. We call this a day of concealment, and many refer to this as the last test. Just as we know that there is a God through uh, a God though we may not see him, so the Rebbe uh, King Mashiach is here uh, even though we do not see him. It is noted that very few Hasidim, the Hasidic, the ultra Orthodox um, Jews, actually pronounce the sentence. There are some that say, the Rebbe is the creator. Uh, though the number is not as negligible or small as some might imagine. In an interview with the Jerusalem Post in 2001, and this is, this is all to show you this, this phrase that Jesus gives, that if another comes in his own name, him you will receive, okay? Um, there was Shabbatai Zvi, which is, I believe, Mark's favorite false messiah, who uh, under pressure converted to Islam, and many of those that followed him also converted, uh, and many, many others. Um, In an interview with the Jerusalem Post in 2001, there is a man that uh, Rabbi uh, Berger explained that uh, in the view of some of these that follow the rabbi as as Messiah, uh, they they say this, "...the supremely righteous, of whom the Rebbe and Moses are chief exemplars, annul their own essence to the point where their entire essence is that of God. It is permissible to bow to them with this understanding. For this reason, the Rebbe is omniscient, omnipotent, and entirely without limits. He is indistinguishable from God because he has a transparent window for pure divinity, a man-God. When you speak to him, you speak to God. And so, um, anyway, which kind of, interestingly enough, can bring us to our next point. The next witness that Jesus gives, okay, is Moses. Do we have any questions, comments? I don't want to monopolize the... uh, of thought here. Okay, so Jesus says in verse 45, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuseth you, even Moses, in whom you trust. For had you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you believe not his writings, how shall you believe my words? Now these last couple of points, specifically the one dealing with Moses, as well as the idea of the scriptures, Okay, Um, it brings together both of those points of Jesus' evangelism methods. Okay, he reaches them where they're at, he speaks to them about Moses, and on the other side of the coin, he doesn't beat around the bush once again. There's one that accuses you to the Father, even Moses, in whom you trust. He wrote of me, he says, I have some verses here, Luke 24, Verse 27, and beginning at Moses, and this is the, uh, the people, the, the two men that were on the road to Emmaus, Okay, after the death, burial, resurrection, Un- unknowingly to them, Jesus had rose from the dead and was speaking to them. At beginning at Mo- And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them all, in all of the scripture the things concerning himself. Same chapter, verse 44, he said unto them, these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. And then in John chapter one, verse 45, when Philip findeth Nathanael and saith unto him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, John 1, 45. When did Moses write about Jesus? Well, I'm gonna give a couple of examples. Jesus is the seed of the woman. He is Shiloh. He is Jehovah who appeared to Abraham. He is the sacrifice that God would provide on Moriah. He is the Passover lamb. He is the prophet that should come. He is the I Am, the Elohim, and the Day of Atonement. Just to name a few, Uh, either types or specific direct prophecies about the coming of the Messiah. I'd like to share with you, um, and we're not going to go to this passage uh, otherwise, because what we're going to look at next in Luke chapter 16, for the remainder of our study, uh, occurs only in Luke, okay? It's not in John, so we're not going to discover it anywhere else. And I, I, It's kind of a, a, a very um, relevant passage to look at, specifically because of how uh, the passage ends. But to give you some context, Jesus is talking to his disciples. Okay, let's go to Luke 16. Well, you guys are already there. I've got to turn there. Luke chapter 16. And let's look up at verse number 13. Jesus is talking to his disciples. In verse number 13, Jesus says, No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and (coughs) mammon or materialism. And the Pharisees also, who were covetous, heard all these things and they derided him." Okay, so this is the context for what we're about to see. The New Testament comes alive when viewed from a Jewish perspective. Context is key. What does this verse have to do with Judaism? Everything. So verse 14, we see that the Pharisees were there. They heard what Jesus was saying about how you can't serve God and riches, okay? In verse 15, he said unto them, "'Ye are they which justify yourselves before men, "'but God knoweth your hearts, "'for that which is highly esteemed among men "'is abomination in the sight of God.'" So he was talking to his disciples and he shifts his focus. He is now talking to the Pharisees, okay? That is his audience uh, from this point. Let's get down to verse number 19. He says, you know what, Pharisees? There was a certain rich man, okay? That's the whole context for this passage. You guys probably are somewhat familiar with the, uh, the label, the story of the rich man and Lazarus, right? Okay, this is the context. Jesus is talking about how you can't serve God and mammon, and the Pharisees were kind of in their minds and hearts, well, yes we can, and they were deriding him. Okay? They were giving him a hard time because they didn't like what he was saying. And then he says, well, let me tell you about a, let me tell you about a rich man. Okay? He, had, he had everything, and that's the context. So. Two people that are involved, verses 19 through 21. There was a certain rich man, which was clothed in purple and fine linen, and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores, and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. Okay, so there's the two men, two men there Lazarus and the rich man. The rich man here is a picture of the mentality that these Pharisees here that Jesus was talking to. Again, not a blanket statement for all Jewish people or all Pharisees, but the specific ones that he was talking to for sure had this mentality. He knew their hearts. And so this rich man is kind of a direct uh, relation to their internal status, okay, heart-wise. And uh, how many of you guys have ever seen Fiddler on the Roof? Okay, what's probably the most well-known song from the Fiddler on the Roof? Uh-huh. Yeah. And again, if I were a rich man, and I'm not going to bother trying to sing, just like, just like Mark. Boy, Mar- Mark and I, we could be a duet together, I guess. Um, I'm not going to bother singing it. <clears throat> but anyway, and this, is, and, and, and this is not only, okay, this is not only a, a um, you know, a statement against the Pharisees that Jesus was speaking to. This can be applied to anybody and everybody. We're all striving to get, you know. We're all materialistic in some sense. We're, we're, we're striving, you know, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. You know, I want that thing. You know, whatever it is, and. Um, so again, this can be applied to everybody, Jew and Gentile alike, but the context is very, 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 very Jewish. And I can add more varies in there if you like. It's very Jewish in its context. Uh, then we see <clears throat> Lazarus, verses 20 and 21. We read them. A man with a humble testimony. <clears throat> How can we tell that Lazarus had... A testimony. Well, well, we'll see that later, okay? I believe that he did based on what we find in this passage. <clears throat> Not only did he have faith internally, but it was shown outwardly. We can, we can pretty well assume that by what we'll read in a minute. <clears throat> okay, two people involved, two paths of death. Lazarus in verse 22, Came to pass that the beggar died, and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died, and was buried. So Lazarus was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom, which, by the way, Abraham's bosom, the subject in that terminology, is mentioned within the Jewish writings, within the Talmud. Okay, and this is a subject that, when Jesus came about and and and. Uh, spoke to the Pharisees about this very real event that took place. This is not a parable, this is not a symbolic story, this is real. Um, He is validating that teaching or that thought of a place known as Abraham's bosom. Um, Over and over and over within the Hebrew Scriptures, when somebody dies, what's the phrase that follows? They were gathered to their their fathers. Right. And many of those people that are mentioned <clears throat> that died. Who was their fathers? Who was their, their, their earthly? Yeah, Abraham. Mm-hmm. Hence the bosom of Abraham, Abraham's bosom, to be with their fathers, gathered to their fathers, gathered to where Abraham is <clears throat> or was. Okay. Um, in Luke 23, 43, we won't go there for time's sake, but what's Jesus tell that man on the cross? Today you will be with me in paradise, okay? Paradise synonymous with this idea of Abraham's bosom, okay? Today you will be with me in paradise. In Ephesians 4.8 it talks about Christ-led captivity captive. Is there anybody in Abraham's bosom now? <clears throat> it's empty, okay? The Bible says that when Jesus descended, then he, he ascended, he took captivity with him. And the Greek has the idea he took a multitude of captives. He took a bunch of people with him. Those people that were in Abraham's bosom, awaiting for the final atonement, mm-hmm. so that their sin could be completely paid for, they are atoned completely, totally. Their sins are gone. They can now be in the presence of a holy God in heaven. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> <clears throat> well, there is those that came out of the graves. Um, at the at, at the moment of his resurrection okay. um, Is that the that, were they in yeah that would have been that that would That's that that would have been okay. hmm so absolutely yeah yeah okay. yeah so okay. yeah we we're not told specifically you know if they uh I, I believe, we're not told exactly how it, how it wraps up, you know, how that situation wraps up or ties. They the yes, they did. They walked on the earth and were seen, okay? And it, I, I wanted to preach a message called the real zombie apocalypse or something like that. <laughs> <clears throat> I don't know, maybe that's in bad taste, but, um, you know, people did come out of their graves and walk around <clears throat> and they were Old Testament saints, you know, um, but they're with, they're with the Lord in heaven now. Um, and it says that um, that when he ascended, he took captivity captive. So I would say that whenever what was done was done, they were gone. They were gone. With, yeah. Um, but that's in Ephesians. In that phrase, "slept with his fathers" or "gathered unto their fathers," is uh, that specific phrase is, is uh, mentioned thirty-six times in the Old Testament. And so that's the context. It's a, when, when 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 people died. Uh, in the in, in the Hebrew scriptures, okay, there's a there, there's a, an idea of, of of reunion, okay, of gathering, to their fathers, which is what this place kind of entailed, okay. And we have the rich man in verse 22 and 23. The rich man also died and was buried, verse 23, and in hell, he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, seeing Abraham afar off and Lazarus, in his bosom. I don't know if you've ever talked to anybody. I don't know if a Jewish person has ever told me this, but I know that some Gentile people have. Well, we're in hell right now, y- you know, because it's just so awful and, yeah, no. Um, anyway, so this passage, okay, is the only, is the only, correct me if I'm wrong here, if you think of it, but to my knowledge, this is the only, only, only first hand account that we have of a man being in hell, that gives us like an, like an eyewitness account first, first hand, that person speaking, you know, and we're, and we're able to see it, you know, witness it. And I believe, I believe, I believe that both of these people were Jewish. Um, anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll get there in a minute. Okay, so the rich man died and was buried and in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments." He was tormented, and it says in verse 23 that he sees Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom, Okay, meaning they're together, Okay, they're hugging or something. Okay? He sees him with him, and uh, he sees him. From this we learn that hell and Abraham's bosom were near each other. Now there's a number of different words that are used for hell in the New Testament. Okay? And there's a couple different words used in the Hebrew as well. Okay? Sheol is the idea of the place of the dead, and that is parallel to Hades. Okay? Sheol and Hades. Okay? Both of those can convey a sense of the place of the dead, but they also, they also can both convey the place of eternal fire and judgment. Okay. Context will tell you what it's referring to. In the Hebrew, there is the word boar, okay, like a wild boar, and that is the word that's translated as the pit. Okay? When it talks about in Isaiah about Lucifer, that he would be brought down to the sides of the pit, the innermost parts of the pit, and there's elsewhere uh, in the scripture that that word is used as a, a definite of the place of judgment, when it's referred to as an eternal... You know, a place after death, the pit, bore. And that is analogous to the New Testament term Gehenna. Okay? Um, in, uh, in, in Hebrew, Geh is valley. Hinnom, okay, the valley of Hinnom, there was a valley that was known for pagan practices and child sacrifice, and it eventually became a garbage dump where everything was burned, and uh, nothing can better picture. Uh, physically what the eternal punishment is that awaits those that do not trust the Lord. And eventually in Revelation chapter 20 it says death and hell, okay, that place was cast into the lake of fire. Um, anyway, okay. So that's that's the place here that we see this. And from we learn from this we learn hell and Abraham's bosom were near each other, okay? Hades uh, gehenna sheol okay the place of the dead now as far as hades being referred to and sheol being referred to as the place of the dead well abraham's bosom was there okay it now is empty but contrary wise the bible says and i'm not sure what passage it is but it says hell hath enlarged itself okay hell is there and it's getting more and more full by the day abraham's bosom is empty but at one point they were you could see one from the other and there was a great gulf fixed as we'll see in a minute. Okay, then we see a plea for mercy in verse 24. And he cried, the rich man cried, Father Abraham. This is not just some term, you know, Father Abraham, that everybody in the world says, hey, it's Father Abraham. No, this, is, this man was Jewish. I believe that with all my heart. He cried and said, Father Abraham, Have mercy on me, send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Now, this is the first time that we see the rich man mention Lazarus. Okay? It wasn't somebody that he was completely oblivious to. It wasn't somebody that he just, oh, I didn't know you were there, I'm sorry. You know, it was somebody that he knew, it was somebody that he saw it was somebody that he perhaps even interacted with. Did the Lord, or did somebody, did he somehow obtain this um, you know, supernatural knowledge of, of Lazarus's name? We're not told that. Um, and by the context of what else is said here, I believe very strongly that this man knew Lazarus. He at least knew his name without God having to implant it in his mind. We'll see that in a minute. Send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. And Abraham said, what's the next word, everybody? Son. Son. Okay, Yep. Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented." Now, this passage doesn't go into as much detail on the how and the why and what happens here and there and how you got here and how he got there, you know, but it's showing you the end result. It's showing you what happens. Uh, Obviously, we know from Scripture, Old Testament and New, okay? Everybody that's ever been saved is saved by faith, okay? Faith in whatever God has progressively revealed in order to, to believe Him, to trust in Him with your whole heart. I'm not sure exactly when this event with Lazarus and the rich man actually occurred, but it occurred before Christ descended and took captivity captive. Okay? it's occurred before the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And he cried, Okay, and uh, Abraham says, Son. Okay, so the rich man's identity is that he was Jewish. And who is Jesus speaking to? This is not just some Jesus standing at a podium in some nebulous region and just speaking, you know, there was a rich man and there was Lazarus. No, there's a specific audience and it's the Pharisees who just a couple of verses earlier were deriding him because they wanted to be able to have their riches and put it in a place of prominence and also have God. And so when he says that this rich man died and was buried and in hell he lifted up his eyes and he cries, Father Abraham, it was something that would... Cut to their heart. Okay? This was, this was a, a condemnation on their current faithlessness and their current practice of uh, you know, not only claiming to worship God but worshiping mammon as well, worldly riches. What does this truth mean? Are there Jewish people in hell? Can somebody end up going to heaven just because they're Jewish? No. And we see over and over and over with the words of Jesus and the rest of this <clears throat> Bible, for that matter, uh, that one does not get a go to heaven free ticket simply by being a child of Abraham physically. And this is something that they would have really not liked. And in fact, that passage that we mentioned earlier in John chapter 8, where they told him, We don't need to be made free, we're Abraham's seed. And so it's the same mentality there. And there are those in quote unquote Christendom that would like you to believe a dual covenant theology, meaning that, well, everybody else, they can have you know, the new covenant and, and, and uh, believe in Jesus as their Messiah and have that atonement. But the Jewish people, they're, they're separate. They have a separate covenant to get to God. And that is in contradiction to this passage alone. As well as not to mention the rest of Scripture. Um, and you perhaps have heard people or heard of people that hold that point of view that is absolutely erroneous, unscriptural. So the rich man's intelligence, okay, again, he says, send Lazarus. He knew Lazarus. And the rich man's imprisonment, he's tormented in the flame. Now, when Abraham says, Son, remember. We learn some amazing, amazing things. Verse 25. Remember that thou in thy lifetime received this. He's he's recalling him to remember something that he's not going to forget for all eternity what he's gone through, okay? How he lived and what he put his faith in, okay? From this, we can learn something huge that in eternity, people that are suffering judgment and the wrath of God for their sin have their memory and they're going to be able to remember this life, this earthly life. What happened and what they did and almost for certain, the foremost things in their mind would be the chances that they had, you know, just things that like we mentioned earlier, God doing things in your life to try and knock some sense into your head to get you to realize that He's trying to save your soul, He's trying to bring you eternal salvation, He's trying to pay the penalty for your sin for you, He's trying to grant you forgiveness, but it's too late. This is something that's, pardon the phrase, an inconvenient truth, okay? We should allow ourselves. It's not fun, we should allow ourselves to be burdened. Sometimes we like to push those things away and out of our mind um, because it's difficult, but that burden should lead to an action. Okay, God is no respecter of persons, and this is, this is the gist of what's being said here. Remember that thou in thy lifetime receiveth thy good things, likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he's comforted and thou art tormented. What is this passage teaching us? It's teaching us that God is not a respecter of persons. It's not that somebody can put, you know, as a coin in the coffer rings a soul from purgatory springs or whatever that phrase was that the Pope's decreed there. Um, It's not, I can put another 20 in the plate. There was a song and I I, I worked at a furniture factory and half the day they played the top 20 hits and half the day they played the country's music, you know. And there was a song, everybody wants to go to heaven but nobody wants to go now. And, yeah, and, um, you know, something about, you know, Lord, we're having fun down here. But he says, uh, you know, put another 20 in the plate or something like that so that I don't remember the exact, but I, I, at one point I printed it out word for word and used it in a sermon because he's saying by putting another 20 in the plate, you know, I'm, 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 I'm setting my place for, for the afterlife, you know. I'm going to be good to go. And what Jesus is saying here, the purpose of it is to show you something contrary to that belief that God is not a respecter of persons. By being the most wealthy, most powerful person that you could possibly imagine, you're not going to be able to buy your way or your power is not going to grant you swing uh, with God to uh, pass you by and trampling underfoot the blood of Jesus that was shed. For your redemption, you can't do that, you can't get by. God has provided the way. There's also a sense of irony uh, here. Lazarus is comforted, the rich man is tormented, and also the finality of the eternal state. There's no escape, okay? God is forever. The debt that we owe is against an eternal God. Jesus is the only one that could have ever paid it. Um, okay, verse number 27. Actually, we didn't do verse 26 yet. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they that which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Okay, there's no escape, there's finality to it. Then he said, verse 27 a plea for warning. Okay? If you think about um, people that have gone on before that have passed away without knowing the Lord as their Messiah, as their Savior, as their sacrifice, as their atonement, what would they say? What would a loved one say? What would a rich and powerful person say? What would all these celebrities that seem to be dropping like flies, what would they say? They would plea for warning just like this rich man does here. Verse number 27, he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, once again, this man was Jewish. I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. He doesn't say send somebody. He doesn't say send an angel. He says, send him, that he'll warn them. That's why I believe Lazarus had a testimony. I don't know for sure because we're not told explicitly in Scripture that he did, but if we read between the lines, we can almost see that Lazarus not only was different, not only did he suffer, that wasn't the characteristic thing of his life, the characteristic thing of his life was that he knew and believed God. He trusted in God. He trusted in the uh, revealed revelation of God that had been given up to whatever point it was, uh, that the Messiah would come, that God would provide a sacrifice, that he wasn't good enough, that he somehow knew that he had to trust that the Lord would uh, provide that. And perhaps he tried to talk to the rich man. I don't know, it doesn't say that, but we know for sure that this rich man, he says, send Lazarus, that he may warn my five brethren that are still alive. That he may testify unto them lest they come into this place of torment." I preached a message from this passage called, A Cry from Hell for Jewish Evangelism, and this is something that we need to take to our, to our heart. That's what we're all about here. Um, when my wife's grandfather passed away, It was one of the first times, I I had a great grandmother that passed away when I was five, I believe. But um, when when my wife's grandfather passed away, it was the first time that I was really aware of what was going on and had known somebody and they passed away. Now he knew the Lord as a savior, but I remember being at that funeral and seeing that casket and there's like this you know time where everybody comes up for the viewing or whatever you know and you walk up and you see that person that's just a shell of that person doesn't look like him at all and then there's the time where because we were of the family now this was the strange part we were of the family and so people come people go people come people go people come people go and yet we're I'm one of like five people that's there when it's all empty the place is closing down. And they say, you can take a look one last time, if you'd like, before we close the casket. There is a finality to it. But praise the Lord, the, the sting of death is gone. And I've been to funerals, I've been to viewings of both sides. And I'll tell you, there is such a difference for somebody that knew the Lord. Because it's not dependent upon that person or the prayers of their family to get them out of hell or to get them to heaven. It's entirely dependent on what Jesus did 2,000 years ago, and it's finished. And so if you know the Lord, and I love the passage in the Psalms where it says, He shall be our guide even unto death. And so he's not going to, at that last moment, when we're lying in that hospital bed or wherever we are, whoops, okay, I'll see you on the other side. He's going to hold our hand and walk us through that door. He will be our guide even unto death. His presence will never leave us, even in that moment where our soul separates from our body. He will continually be with us through the whole thing. Somebody that's lost does not have that. There was a lady in the church that we were going to in Cleveland, and she gave her testimony at one, at one time. She was in a convent. She was studying to be a nun. She was preparing to be a nun. and She was getting ready to take her vow. And she went to the hospital to see one of the priests that was there at that you know church. and. Uh, He was dying, okay, and he was in a hospital bed. And she said that he was the most fearful man that she had ever seen. He was quivering. He had no assurance that he was going to go to heaven. And she thought, this man's a priest. How in the world am I supposed to have any assurance of where I'm going to go when I die if this man who's devoted his life and is supposedly an intermediary between me and God, he doesn't know where he's going. How in the world am I going to survive? And so she started searching the scripture, and she's born again today. She's saved. But there's a difference. And uh, anyway. Yes. I know that, um, and I won't give the whole whole situation here and now, but when I got saved, okay, Mm -hmm. me and my best friend, we were alone in his room at like five in the morning. And the tension was so heavy. We were talking about God. We were both unsaved. Neither of us were born again, and we were just talking about God, okay? We've been talking about him. I, I, I had gotten back from a, a Christian camp, and he had gotten back from a different Christian camp, and providentially the same week we both got home, we were both convicted, we both wanted to talk about some things that we would heard that week. He was raised in a Bible-believing church, but he, was, he didn't want anything to do with it. He was rebellious against it, and his 15-year-old boys, you know, slept over his house, and we started talking about stuff, and we turn off the lights, time to go to bed, and a couple hours later, we're still talking. And like you're talking, I mean, when we, 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 we cry out to God, you know, ask him to save us, turn from our sin, we knew the truth. It was just that there was such a battle going on that we didn't see. There was a battle going on for our souls, and the tension was so thick, you could cut it with a knife. And afterward, it was like, you know? And just this unbelievable peace, you know, and, 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 and joy. And um, I'll mention I'll mention this right now. We're almost done. Uh, this is just a side note, but one of the first things, one of the first thoughts, and this is kind of a little, not odd, but it's, 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 it's neat, one of the first thoughts that entered my heart and mind that night or that morning uh, after I got saved was, "The flood really happened. You know, Like instantly, Because I I knew that if what God says about salvation is true, if what he says about being born again, and I'd heard it over and over and over and over and over, okay, but I finally got it. I finally trusted it by faith. And it was like God's spirit uh, bearing witness with my spirit, like it says in the book of Romans, that if this is true, because I know now this peace, this, this, this forgiveness that I've experienced, if this is true, then God really did flood the world. God really did, you know, um, do all those things with the ark and with it just uh, Something just came in my mind. But um, it's 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 so different if you're uh, experiencing a life and death situation with somebody that knows the Lord versus somebody that doesn't. Well, it
0: terrified me. Yeah. I, mean, I could feel, she was crying out and, and moaning and it was just awful. Oh. Mm.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, we need to pray for this world, pray for the Jewish people, and tell them, tell them. Okay, our last two points here, and we'll be done. Uh, Okay, the plea for warning we've already talked about. The possession of the truth, verse 29. This man says, I have five brothers. "'Tell tell Lazarus to go to my father's house, "'that he may testify unto them, "'lest they also come into this place of torment. "'I don't want them to come here.' "'Abraham says unto them,' and this is why I tied it in with Jesus saying that, "'If you'd believe Moses, you'd believe me, "'for he wrote of me. "'Abraham saith unto him, "'They have Moses, and the prophets. "'Let them hear them.' "'And he said, "'Nay, Father Abraham, "'but if one went unto them from the dead, "'they would repent.' "'And he said unto him, "'If they hear not Moses,' and the prophets. If they don't believe what this book says, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead." Real quickly here, Moses. Oh, and I also find this interesting. When did Abraham live and die? Before or after the existence of Moses? Before. Okay, so this is kind of interesting, you know. In hindsight, Abraham talking about Moses. And we read also in John chapter 8. Again, am I going back to John chapter 8? Maybe it's John chapter 10. No, John chapter 8. Jesus says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he was glad when he saw it. Um, Okay, so. Moses says in Deuteronomy 18, I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren, like unto thee. Okay, and this is God talking to Moses. I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren, like unto thee. And he will put my words, I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. This one, this prophet that I'm going to send, it's going to be like you, Moses. He's going to be parallel to Moses. This prophet that I'm going to send, I'm going to require everybody that hears his words, whether they obey what he says or not. And we find by the time of Jesus that the Jewish people were still looking for, quote unquote, that prophet. The priests and the Levites sent from Jerusalem unto John the Baptist asked him, Are you that prophet? This is what they're speaking of. At that point, they were still looking for that prophet. This passage is applied to Jesus in both Acts chapter 22, or Acts chapter 3, verse 22 by Peter, and Acts chapter 7, verse 37 by Stephen. Jesus said, If you would have believed Moses, you'd believe me, for he wrote of me. Abraham tells the same thing to the rich man. He says, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And then in verse 30 and 31, we see pride, pride, something that not only the people of God have, speaking of the Jewish people, but all of us have. In verse 30 and 31, he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they would repent. And he said, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither would they be persuaded. They're looking for a sign. How many things has God brought into their life that they don't realize is a sign? You know. Or um, we need to pray for them. From the pages of Scripture, we see a Jewish man in hell. We hear his words. We feel his burden. We hear his cry to warn them. There's something like 15 million Jewish people across the globe. And somewhere around 30,000 in the Raleigh-Durham-Chapel Hill area. This rich man, he says, I want you to warn my five brethren. Who are the rich man's brethren? The Jewish people. They're still here. Are we warning them? There's 15 million of them, 30,000 right here. When you read, send him, in Luke 16, 27, Does God speak to you? And He should be speaking to all of us. The Gospel is still the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Why do you think it's to the Jew first? Well, with all that we've looked at so far, and that's not just chronologically that it would go to the Jew first and now for the last 2,000 years it's gone to the Gentiles. This is an order of priority, this is an order of who it was given to, who the responsibility is laid upon first and foremost, and also to the rest of the world. Um, I may have mentioned this before, in John chapter 3, when John tells Nicodemus the most famous Bible verse in all of the world, for God so loved the world, right? He tells this to a Jewish person. So that kind of puts it in context, yes, God loves the whole world. but who was, that first, who was that Bible verse first privately given to? A Jewish person. Anyway, any comments or questions or discussion before we wrap everything up here? And that'll, that'll end John chapter 5. Next time we'll start with the loaves and the fishes, John chapter 6. That was a very good lesson. Praise the Lord. Thank you for listening. Yes, sir. Okay, so with those that would be in that place, it's kind of like a holding place within Sheol, the realm of the dead. Okay, uh, in the Old Testament, it constantly uses the phrase "they were gathered to their fathers," "gathered to their fathers," and so on. But in Ephesians chapter four, it gives us kind of a, um, in verse eight, it kind of gives us a glimpse in the surrounding verses as well that when Jesus descended, when did he descend? Well. After his his death on the cross, before his resurrection, before he ascended, the Bible says that he led a multitude of captives with him when he ascended into heaven. And so, sin is now paid for, paid in full. The blood is sprinkled on the mercy seat in heaven, and it's done. Before that point, people could not be uh, in the presence of a holy God in heaven. And once Jesus was uh, died, buried, and, and, and rose again; they could now be with him. And now Abraham's bosom is vacant, and uh, we are able to go to be absent from the body to be present with the Lord. Um, but there was that moment in time when those that were in Abraham's bosom—Abraham, Lazarus, and others—why are they? What? Why are they? Why, why are they uh, you know, they're in Abraham's bosom then, but they're not there anymore. They're in heaven now because their sin has been paid for. It's, it's, it's removed as far as the east is from the west. And the blood of his, his son has covered their sin, cleansed their sin. They're completely atoned for. So those
0: early evangelists that came out of the grave and spread through Jerusalem,
1: they were in the bosom of Abraham to that time. They would have been, yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And even, I believe that the reference to the thief on the cross, who said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And when Jesus says, I'll tell you today, you'll be with me in paradise. I believe that's a reference to Abraham's bosom. It's a short stop, but um, I believe that's a reference to that as well. (laughs) Absolutely.
0: It's the only time that particular word, though, is ever used in all the scripture.
1: I think it's used. I think it's used elsewhere as well, but maybe not translated exactly the same. The Greek word is pardes. It's where we get the word paradise from. Um, but it has a very specific Jewish connotation, in reference to Abraham's bosom. Any other? All right, well, I'll go ahead and close in a word of prayer, and I'll pray for the, uh, the refreshments, too. I guess we got some goodies. And uh, we'll pray that, uh, that Mark continues to recover as well. Continue to pray for the Johnson family, right? And for Tom's uh, procedure in May, continuing with his, his uh, cancer, uh, you know, the, uh, the diagnosis there. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, so much once again for this night. Thank you for reminding us.
0: Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries, thanking you for listening to our Bible study. These Jewish Awareness podcasts are a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. If you have questions about the study that you just listened to, or, would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org, email us at office at jewishawareness.org, or call us at 919 275 4477. Shalom.